0: Hi, how's it going, everybody, and welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Christina Flaschen, the founder and CEO of Pandium, an e-commerce platform designed to better build, launch, and promote native software integrations. On this episode, Christina and I discuss software integrations, how e-commerce tech partnerships have evolved over time, common barriers for B2B e-commerce companies that are looking to grow their partner ecosystem, and much more. Here Here's our interview now. Christina, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Very happy to have you. So first off, why don't you tell me a little bit about your company, Pandium.
1: Yeah. So we are a B2B SaaS company. We help other SaaS companies make more money through their technology ecosystems. So we're really focused on helping mid market size B2B SaaS companies build and launch more integration so that the end customer, oftentimes merchants, folks that sell online, have a native interoperable experience.
0: Awesome. And so what sort of specific problems prompted the founding of Pandium?
1: Yeah, so I could, I mean, I could talk forever about my origin story, but I've been working in the space for 15 plus years and working in integration, sort of management and development that entire time at various companies. And You know, back in the day, uh, you know, the early 2000s integration was really something that companies that were really large, you know, like Fortune 500 companies paid a lot of money to have consultants come in and build a connection between their SAP instance and their warehouse management tool, as an example. And what we see now is more and more smaller companies. Are building that interoperability off the shelf so that the end customer, the merchant doesn't have to pay a consultant to build that connectivity to use their, you know, their kind of tech stack for their fulfillment and sales of their goods. So following that transition over the course of 15 years, I saw that there wasn't really a good tool to help accommodate that second use case. So to make it really easy for SaaS companies to build these apps that their customers really see as features of a product. So as an example, if you're a merchant and you sell stuff online, when you're going to go look for a new WMS, if you're a Shopify shop, you are likely going to go to the Shopify App Store and look and see what integrates with your Shopify store so that you don't have to go pay for something additional or use Zapier or something like that. That is the type of experience that we power for SaaS companies is that point and click, like very easy. You don't know Pandium's there, but we're helping our customers onboard more merchants onto both solutions.
0: You mentioned something very important there, and I think that's you call it like the the white label and you don't know that it's there. Oftentimes you don't know that it's there. Can you kind of explain that to me? I mean, a company using your services and then not giving you credit for it because they want it to look like it's done in-house or yeah, dive into that a little bit for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we try to think about it as credit, right? But we really do, one of our our primary differentiators from a lot of competitors and other folks in the space is that we're very under the hood. So folks that have talked to us in the past will hear us say we're homegrown on steroids. Like we want the experience for your development team and your product team to be a flexible as possible and for your customers to feel like it was something that was built in-house and is something that's supported by you. So you don't have a login as a merchant to Pandium. The experience is right within our customer's application or the app stores of their partners. And yeah, you shouldn't see our name or our logo anywhere in that experience as a merchant in the same way that if you're using a SaaS product, you don't know that they're hosted on AWS or GCP. You know, our, our customers obviously know that we exist because they use a bunch to our features and they deploy technology onto us. But, you know, it's a little less sexy being an infrastructure tool in that way. Like, you know, your logo is not splashed all over everything, but it is cool to know that you know, every month, thousands of merchants are using apps powered by us to the tune of you know tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of revenue that we're enabling for these folks. So uh, I will say for your listeners, if you're going to be an infra tool, you have to be intrinsically motivated because it's not as cool as uh, you know having that big splashy launch. But we do get to see our customers have those launches, right? Like they get to announce a new partnership with somebody, and we know internally that that we help them do that.
0: No, absolutely. I think that's very cool. So, how do seamless integrations directly correlate, as you're mentioning, with an increase in revenue for for the company using Pandium?
1: Yeah. So there's so many ways to answer that question. So the way that we think about the market, B2B SaaS market generally, in terms of our the problems that we solve, is in roughly two segments, right? There's going to be companies that have a mature concept of ecosystem, like e commerce is a good good example of that. Anyone in like the SMB tool space, like smaller CRMs, accounting softwares have really embraced the idea of like not being everything to all people and trying to partner. Then there's the other side of the coin with uh, maybe some older technology or like deep enterprise, very bespoke pieces of technology where ecosystem is a little less, a little less common, right? For inter for reasons around the tech limitations, the market, et cetera. So for those second guys, where like the ecosystem thing is not necessarily something, like there isn't an app store, you just assume nothing is going to connect to your system, it can really result in a huge market differentiator. Like If you're looking at a space that is all kind of point solutions, and most tech spaces, even the older ones, are today, it's likely that your competitors also haven't tried to go down that path because it's hard. Uh, so if you can offer a solution, that can really... Make a huge difference in your sales conversations. Just being able to say, not even having an official partner, but like, hey, we integrate with your ERP. That is a very uh, important thing because business users are starting to mimic, in my in my opinion, consumers more and more. They're like expecting this interoperability. It's not something that they w- that they want to pay for. They just assume it's going to happen. So that can be a real competitive advantage on that side. It can you know, spur innovation and all that. But we really spend most of our time on the other side of that coin, where ecosystem is pretty either. Um, already common or it's emerging uh, in certain sectors. There's this role now at companies called uh, partner managers. So technology partnership managers is where we sit. There's also like channel and reseller and agency. But if you are a company that has a technology partner manager or a person that's working on that, that means that you have enough partners that there needs to be A relationship that's managed, and there will be revenue associated with that. Whether that is rev share, whether it's just referral revenue, flat fees, whether it's that merchants that are referred by certain partners have like a way higher ACV because their transaction volume is higher, or just that the retention is much better because they're stickier when they or they adopt more features when they are working within a partner uh, ecosystem. There is always dollars and cents associated with. Partnerships, right? Like, even if it is customer satisfaction, that boils down to money, right? That boils down to uh, lower churn, uh, more upsells, etc. So there are really like innumerable ways that that this stuff helps. I will say in our space, it's an interesting challenge is tracking that attribution because you know if a if a merchant comes in and they you know sign up for a free trial for your product, they may have seen you in the Shopify app store, but you. Maybe don't know that, or maybe they saw you in a bunch of app stores and then came through. And that partner person may or may not be able to track that that ecosystem is working. But what we see with leading companies like the Shopify, the Salesforce, NetSuite, HubSpot is that they have these huge, this huge like ecosystem of technology around them, and everybody makes money in that world.
0: And I think one of the things that's interesting with Pandium is it feels indefinite how long a business is going to be using your software if i'm like a growth agency i I use you know a, a company uses my services as long as they're trying to grow and then once they hit a good limit they stop using it but with this sort of software If people are putting, you know, applications for integrations via marketplace onto their website, they can't really take that away or, you know, the user is going to be like, it doesn't make any sense. So I I feel like that's a, a major benefit in your company's business model is the extreme longevity of it. Was part of that in the business model of having that sort of a long-term gain or, or was that just a total serendipitous benefit?
1: No, and no, it was definitely intentional. So our net revenue retention is very, very high. To your point, it's really, once you're launched, like, you know, your customers won't really tolerate you taking these things away. Exactly. From my vantage point, you know, we are a lot of things, but at our, we are hosting and running these apps, right? So we're an infrastructure tool to that end. From my vantage point, as long as that infrastructure tool is working, like is doing what it says it's going to do and the price is worth it, companies will not leave. Like, why would you leave? The product works consistently, like the reliability is there, like you're getting the support you need and you're, you feel like the price, the ROI exists, and you can either save money or make more money as a result of using the tool, you'll stay with it. Like people don't switch cloud providers unless they absolutely have to, like migrate from AWS to GCP. Like you just, you don't do that in the same way that you would potentially switch like a data enrichment platform or uh, a MarTech tool where you just, you know, export your customer list, use a new one, and no one really notices except marketing. This is uh, something that would be more disruptive. So our primary goal is to make sure that we're hitting those two boxes, right? Like product works uptime is great. Like We're highly reliable. Our customers rely on us for a huge part of their business and make sure that the price makes sense and that the ROI is there at scale.
0: No, that's great. I'm curious. You mentioned, and I think your website mentions uh, CRMs as a typical use for Pandium, a typical company that would use Pandium. I'm interested if, if there are typical case studies for its use in the marketplace? I mean, is it pretty much CRMs? I mean, what are, what are some of the other types of companies that are using uh, your software?
1: Yeah. So as you might guess, we have a strong like referenceability because every time a customer launches their like app store or whatever with us, we are typically exposed to their partners in some capacity. Whether their partners know that we're there or not is a different story, but oftentimes they you know were introduced as a, as a courtesy. So we have concentration in certain parts of the market because we're like talking to the same kinds of groups of people and e- SMB e-com is a great spot for us. So, 3PLs, WMS, ticketing systems, returns management, sort of the entire constellation of tools around that, you know, not that like JCPenney or Target level merchant and maybe also not that like D2C very 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 small merchant because they don't have the pricing tolerance for our customers, but that sort of middle range of folks that sell in places like Shopify, Magento, BigCommerce, Wix, those are really that the folks that that we serve well and, and more generally zooming out if we look at what's common amongst those folks and then also amongst our other industries that we work with what we're really seeing is high vol- high transaction volume so like the data that's moving between systems is moving a lot like very chatty might not be the volume in terms of like the size but more just like it's constantly happening that it's business critical so it's not like a slack bot or something it's like this is like moving information about an order to the thing that fulfills the order and the buyer other user is not an engineer. So, like, they want to be able to just go in on their own, maybe have a couple of questions, but like make some selections, turn it on, and like they're done. That is where we see success. And if we look at our customer base, even we have e com on one side, but then there's a bunch of others, they're all similar in that way.
0: With that being said, it, my logical brain would say that the UX has, has to be pretty tight and the UI has to be pretty tight because if I'm not an engineer and I'm going to be using it, then it needs to be pretty seamless. Is that accurate?
1: Yes, yes, that is accurate. And um, so our flagship product, I, talk about, I talked about the Shopify app store. We can have folks listed in those app stores, but our flagship product is really uh, the app store that lives inside our customers. So it enables every company to have like a Shopify experience of their own and also be in those places. And we spent a lot of time early on looking at what we consider to be like the best in breed app stores and designing our UX around that and our UIs around that. So like, what are your merchants as an example? What are they already looking at all day, every day? What are they used to looking at? Let's like try to mimic the functionality of that, keeping it very like customizable and themable. Like you can add your own text and fonts and colors and change the layout and stuff. But um, a lot of those experiences look very similar. You know, there's different theming, but like the nuts and bolts of like how you get through the workflows are pretty pretty much the same. So we really focused a lot of time early on on making sure that that was a really good experience and that people didn't get confused and that it wasn't too complicated. Lots of like CTAs so that you know exactly what you're supposed to do. So your customers are able to get through that installation without having to talk to somebody. <laughs> that's
0: the goal. Once people are using something and that's kind of their default, they expect everything to be that default. I mean, the, the example that I, I think of is you know, Netflix was the first streaming service. Now, all of them essentially, it all looks kind of like, it's a little different, but it looks like how Netflix's search looks like or or how you scroll. So people are going to be used to that. So what you provide them is something that is similar. But I think that custom uh, ability to be customized is important too, because different people have different sensibilities.
1: Yeah. And and people care about their theming, right? Like you can't just like drop something in that looks totally different, even if it's you know, within their application. You know, there's just only so many creative ways to authenticate into a system, do some configurations, and then like go back to monitor it. And, you know, we have ideas with a couple different themes, and we have different skins and stuff. But we really wanted it to be functional. Above all else, it should be very easy for that merchant to find what they're looking for, search for, the, you know, the WMS, see the options, find it in Install it, configure it, and be done.
0: And you mentioned your relationship with with partners and how valuable that is to the company. How have you seen e commerce tech partnerships evolve over the past few years?
1: Well, technology partnerships weren't even really a thing that much in in smaller companies. Um, like even if you go back five years, you know the big guys like the Shopify. We we think of it as like the big fish and the little fish. Like the little fish does the building, the big fish has the distribution. Essentially, the big fishes had partner folks, but the little fish typically did not. And those little fish in this example can be big fish to their downstream partners, Uh, but there's somebody that does the building and like owns the app. And that in our example, typically is the little fish. So partner managers weren't even a thing, right? You would have agency, reseller, you know, all kinds of different partner ship types but those didn't have like technology underpinning them right like they're really more commercial straight biz dev i'm sending you leads i'm taking a rev share off of selling your product technology partnerships are different because there is technology that's required to make that that work and just since we've been been in business right like we've seen the sort of evolution of technology partnership roles going to smaller and smaller companies like now you see companies that within their first 10 hires especially in things like e-commerce because it's so important to have that connectivity, that they will hire people. And they'll hire people specifically that have good relationships, existing good relationships with some of the folks they're trying to play nice with, which I don't think you would see, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, definitely not. And we're also seeing, you know, as time evolves, that a significant percent of a company's net new revenue can be associated with partnerships. The way that that association is measured like the rubric for that is different in every company like is it something that you got an email from a partner with a lead and then they converted directly or do you have a tool that actually tracks with cookies where they came from like there's all different ways companies used to measure that and that's a different conversation but we're seeing you know companies over time go from like one, 2% of net new revenue being partner, uh, like affiliated, like a com- something with a partner to like 20, 30% in the course of, you know, 12 to 18 months. And if you're a company, that's yeah, if you're a company, a post series C company, you've got, you know, 3000 employees, I don't even know $100 million revenue, whatever, like that's a meaningful number. That's not like 1% of 100 and then 20% of 100. Like this is big dollars associated with this with this stuff. So my kind of take on on the entire sort of saas sales market is that it's moving towards a lot of um like hands-off selling, like even for like larger, more expensive tools, folks don't want to talk to somebody and they also don't want to be called or emailed. So how are these merchants, as an example, going to find the next solution they're going to use? They're going to look in these app stores of the partners they already use. Same thing with our customers. If they're inside their app and they're looking for a new return management tool, they're going to go and see what integrates out of the box and that's what they're going to buy. So we think it's more successful than, you know, than like a billboard or a sign on a bus uh, because we're all living online.
0: It stays more... (laughs) inside baseball and it's already being peer reviewed pretty much. I mean, this guy trusts this product. So I'm automatically, I trust that guy. That's kind of a bingo bango scenario instead of having to actually like pitch and sell as much as it's just relationship based.
1: Yeah, it's actually, it's a cool space to work in. So I've been on the technical side of tech partnerships. I've also done some of the commercial management um, as companies that I worked with Started to have those as a as a byproduct of having these integrations. But it's been really fun to work with partner professionals, which we typically work very closely with because we want them to be rock stars within their organizations at our customers. Because everybody wins in these scenarios, right? Like if you are a three-fail provider and you integrate with Wix and then you also downstream integrate with a returns management tool, whatever. Like the merchant wins when you have the interoperability because they're happy that they have something that just works. Wix is happy because they're getting a rev share from that 3PL if that merchant converts because that probably originated in Wix. The downstream company is happy because they're getting a referral from that middle guy who's our customer. And our customer is happy because they got a brand new lead, right? And there's just money flowing throughout that whole experience. And nobody is like... Holding the short end of that stick. Like the merchant wants this, like the end customer wants all this stuff to just work. They want to hook it up once and have it just do its thing. So that's fun. You know, like we're not like we're in a space where everyone is kind of aligned on the common goal, which is obviously money. But then the way that you get there is by providing a great experience for that, that shared customer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it really sounds like a win, win, win scenario. I'm curious what, what's some of the common barriers for, you know, business to business e-commerce companies that, are looking to grow their partner ecosystem and offer user-facing integrations.
1: I mean, it's always time, which is money, right? I don't like referring to like engineers as resources because like, I just think it's kind of depersonalizing to be like, we don't have enough resources. I'm like, "You're, you're actually talking about people and like hours of their day. But that is often what it comes down to is just trying to prioritize this. And again, because the partnership stuff takes a little bit more time to start to bear fruit directly like you have to first like prove that this the integration works and then that the partner is worth it and then eventually you'll get to tracking it it's not like that like immediate quick win from a revenue perspective necessarily it can be really hard to prioritize this stuff product engineering teams don't want to work on integrations like I've built my entire career on the fact that I really like working on these things, and I've gotten good at it because I've done it so much. And now, you know, we think that this is the future, and like we're building an entire market around it. But the vast majority of PE companies, there are PE um, departments at companies, did not join that company to build integrations, right? They joined to build the cool, you know, IP, they joined to build, you know, to solve interesting problems, to be able to have a cool roadmap. And integration is a requirement, but is much less sexy, oftentimes. And it can actually be hard. So when folks join a company, um, and they're trying to do this for like the first time, if somebody has any experience, they'll recognize that like, hey, this isn't actually like a two week long thing. It's like supporting a whole new product and building all of the things around that product that you need to make it successful. Like even like observability and alerting, like there's so much stuff that goes into this that folks don't think about until they've done it a few times. So we really want to lower, like we lower that barrier to entry to the things that we think are really specific to your business that you will know best, that we, you should not rely on another platform to make decisions for because you know your customers, you know your product, uh, but let us deal with all the rest of the stuff that make this a real pain in the ass, especially when you don't just have one customer using that HubSpot integration, you have 10, or 100 or 1000 or 5000, like, then it becomes a whole DevOps team to keep this stuff running. So that's what we do, right? Like we take that away from you, so that your partner people are happier, they can say yes to their commercial relationships, and your P&E team isn't staring down the barrel of what they think is a three-month project that ends up being an entire team to maintain and build over time.
0: So how easy is it, you know, succinctly, how easy is it for developers to work with Pandium? If, If I'm in that organization and I want to maybe there's a there's there's a integration or, or connector that that isn't available but i want it on my marketplace store how how easy is that to do
1: yeah so launching the app store itself like that that ux where your customers can browse hands on keyboard time is like an hour worth of work so very very late the building of the app itself what we ask engineering users to do is essentially write a little bit of code that handles the business logic for the integration so that can be anywhere from you know like a day or two to like a week or two it depends on how complex and you know what processes you have internally we believe and we urge people to treat these apps these integrations as features like your your customers see them as a feature whether or not they know that you built it someone else whatever they're not decoupling it and saying like oh that's just an integration who cares like they probably bought your product in part because you had this thing. So, you know, we advise folks and we enable them to do things like run their um, automated test suite, do code reviews, like use their GitHub account or Bitbucket or whatever they're using, like really closely mimic what they would do when they were building anything else so that the engineering folks that are using Pandium don't have to learn anything new, right? So there's no like Pandium Academy where you have to go spend, you know, eight hours learning how to use our UI. Like deploying to us is very similar to deploying to like a Lambda on AWS. So distilling it down to like, hey, you, Alex, you know your customers, you know your API, you know all the weird things they're going to try to, they're going to want to do when they use your tool with HubSpot. Focus on that and let us do all the rest of the stuff Um, and also allow it to scale So when you do have one, you know, that one beta customer is good. You can launch it to your 5,000 other customers. And no matter how many people adopt it, you're not going to feel anything additional.
0: Not as many like growing pains.
1: Correct. And also, you know, there's all kinds of other stuff. But, you know, giving your CS team a place to go to troubleshoot, like giving your partner team a place to go to update content and add new listings. There's like all that sort of tangential stuff that companies don't think about when they're doing this for the first time. But when you start to have that real like ecosystem and partner led sales motion, all of these things start to come up.
0: What are y'all working on right now in terms of your growth and your scale? What's the next five years look like for Pandium in, in an ideal
1: world? I mean, take over the world, right? No, I mean, that's that's the, the making the world a better place through native integrations. Uh, you know, like, again, we we were very early to market in this space. There wasn't really anyone else looking, or I'm not even really, there wasn't anyone else looking at this problem when we launched. So we've been watching it evolve over the last four or five years. But- I don't think that point solutions are going anywhere. Like, I don't think we're going to see massive contraction where like everything is run by one company. And even if it is, that's going to be by gobbling up a bunch of companies which still have to talk to each other. We're going to continue to have specialized point solutions and business users are going to continue to expect them to work together. So the market that we serve only continues to grow with every SaaS company that launches and with every business user that uses technology, right? Like every time a business opens that uses a piece of technology, that's one more customer that we can serve indirectly. Well, directly, but they don't know it, right? So we want to be as ubiquitous as something like a, like a Jira, right? Like, why would you build all of this stuff yourself? Why would you have servers in a closet? don't build your own ticketing system because you need tickets. You use JIRA or something similar. You don't buy, you know, servers to run your application anymore. You use a cloud hosting provider. Like we are going to be the default. For this kind of stuff, because why not? Um, And there's also so much, I mean, I could get into a lot around like sort of how software is trending towards these like customer facing apps and like kind of what that really means. But that's like a longer, more theoretical conversation that is hard for me to even articulate. So we don't use that in our go to market. But at the end of the day, you know, we want to make everyone's life easier by taking the headache out of connecting all these systems um, and being the best company to do that at really large scale. And I think companies like Zapier will continue to exist. Like they're a great company. They're a great tool. Uh, They serve the long tail and they also serve like the consumer type of user, but for everything else, for the things that are kind of business critical, companies will use Pandium to offer that interoperability natively.
0: Wonderful. The very last Question that I have was the same last question I have on every episode. With the increase in stress that entrepreneurs like yourself deal with, uh, I find it's really important to have a a healthy work life balance, work life harmony. I'm curious, Christina, what are some of your hobbies and interests that you practice outside of work to ensure good mental health?
1: (laughs) Oh, man. So um, I'm looking to my side here because I can see it a little bit. So uh, we foster kittens. Oh. That's awesome. We've been doing it for about three years. We're up to like 55 or 60 total kittens over time. So we get like the little tiny ones that you have to feed with the bottle every hour overnight and get them healthy and good and then ready to go to their forever homes through um, like four or five different rescues here in Brooklyn. And they they happen to be over in this room right now. I'm surprised you can't hear them raising hell over there. No, not at all. So that has been really great. That started during COVID. So my husband and I had something to do other than work and like stare at each other. I was like, this is not, because this is not going to be good if that's what we do for months and potentially years. And I love volunteering. I actually think service is a really, service is an important part of my life. Uh, it always has been. And, you know, I've done everything from, you know, like the soup kitchen kind of stuff, homeless outreach, um, direct mentorship, uh, and also now mentoring in the startup community. Because when I started this company, I remember asking everyone I knew, I was like, hey, I want to talk to a female CEO of an enterprise tech company and like, no one could tell me who that was. <laughs> like, oh, man. I was like, Oh, okay. Like there are definitely a few, but I didn't have access to them directly. Right. So. Or
0: they weren't as involved. Or, or
1: like you're just busy working. Sure. No, 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 like, no. Exactly. I have since obviously been introduced to a lot and, and it's been great, but I also want to provide that for folks. If I can be helpful, this journey your listeners is not something that other people can really understand, especially when you get beyond just yourself and your co-founder or whatever, when you have employees and they have families and they are relying on you for payroll and you have big customers that really rely on you for their business and it can be very stressful. So I think finding your your sort of community of folks that really understand that is really important. So I would encourage folks to, to try to do that.
0: 100%. Very, very cool. Christina, good luck with your cats.
1: Oh, thanks. They're so sweet. Good
0: luck with Pandy and it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you.
1: It's been great talking with you too. Have an excellent day and I'm sure we'll uh, see you out there.
0: I'd like to thank my guest, Christina Flaschen, for joining me on the show and come back on Tuesday when I talk with Dr. Sherry Walling, a licensed clinical psychologist and the founder of a company called Zen Founder, which helps entrepreneurs thrive in business and in life through psychological theory and her years of experience in the entrepreneurial trenches. For more information about Christina, you can connect with her on LinkedIn. To learn more about Pandium, you can check out their website, pandium.com spelled P-A-N-D-I-U-M, or follow them on Twitter at Pandium I That's our show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday and Thursday. Until then.